Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast, where we honor the men and women of nation's first responder communities by having difficult conversations about the challenges they face every day. Absolutely. And uh, we are lucky enough uh, again to be uh, graced with another gentleman that uh, has been willing to hop on the podcast, share a little bit about uh, his journey and, and what he's been through. You know, kind of the, the old adage where he's going to explain to us how it was, what he went through, you know, what he did uh, to better his and his family's life, and then, you know, what his life is like now. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing this story. I have not heard it myself, so uh, I'm a fly on the wall listening today and, and learning more about our friend here. Awesome. I could not be more excited about bringing uh, this guy on. He's uh, He's been amazing to get to know. I've had more fun with this guy than a barrel of monkeys laughing their asses off because we we've had we've had some great times so i'm super excited to to bring on uh my friend rob deventi rob is a uh firefighter for a few years uh phoenix pd officer for 16 years originally hails from long island new york uh, which in and of itself has its own series of jokes that i hope we get to he's married to a beautiful woman named shannon Without any further ado, Rob Deventi. How you doing, bro? What's up, boys? So glad to have you. It's great to be here. Uh, honor and a privilege to, you know, I told my wife, I said, if I can help one person today, I'm a freaking winner, man. It's awesome. Uh, no, it was funny because when you asked me uh, to do this podcast, I was at the grocery store and uh, literally maybe two minutes before you asked me, uh, one of my buddies sent me a text message and said, hey, do you know this guy? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, he just killed himself. And I go, well, ain't that a fucking sign that I should help somebody? So uh, the guy was a badass, um, great officer. And you know what? I, you know, I felt guilty, man. I, I want to help him with, I wanted to help him with his recovery journey. I didn't know what he was going through. So I said, you know what? If, I, if this podcast can help one person, uh, maybe two, that'd be great. And, you know, give somebody an out that they can reach out to me, you, Austin, and we'll get some more officers helping. That's why I decided to do this amazing podcast that I listened to. You know, the reality is it takes a lot of bravery, actually, to put yourself out there and make yourself vulnerable to tell your story. And you, you have such a great story, but I am really, I'm really excited about it. And, and the, the challenge, obviously, is telling our stories and getting it out there and letting people identify and connect and say, hey, I'm not alone. You know, we're not even through it yet, but thank you for thank you for doing this. Um, such a Definitely. such a heavy way to start, and I don't think there's any reason to pause. I think we, with that, I think you just did a great intro, Rob. Uh, take off. Tell tell us a little bit about you, man. Yeah, so uh, I don't. I always wanted to be a cop since uh, I was four years old. Uh, never changed. Never wavered. You know, my dad's a firefighter. I mean, still a firefighter. He's almost seventy years old, and he's still a firefighter back in New York. So, saw my cousin. He was a he was a police officer. I was like, well, I want to go help people. Uh, the whole, you know, driving fast and shooting guns thing never really, really ever, you know, got my fancy. You know, it was investigation that was like that would be the coolest thing in the world to wear the suit and tie and go out to scenes and people look at you and you know go out and tell like the most craziest crimes and stuff like that. So. 
I started testing uh, all around the nation, New York, uh, Virginia, and I had no idea anything about Phoenix. I thought that they still rode horseback here, and there was no cars, and I, I literally didn't know anything about Phoenix. I had no clue. 21 years old, and my godfather lived out here, my makeshift godfather, uh, after uh, allowing me to live with him and go through the academy and take all the tests and stuff. So came out here, 21. Yeah, I don't know why they gave me a badge and done at 21, because I was not ready. 100%. After going through the academy and going to through FTO and all that stuff, I'm sitting there, 21 years old, responding to domestic violences, and me, this, like I said, 21-year-old rookie, is telling somebody that's been married for 15, 20 years how to live their life. And I go, this is, this is really weird, and I don't know how to... It's just a mind jolt, you know. You get put in this high authority, high responsibility situation, and with no real guidance. I mean, we had the academy, we had FTO, but it, it it changes. And Brad, you know, I mean, once you go solo, it, it's a different world, man. Is the landscape a little bit? I mean, you're from New York, right? And so I'm sure you had an idea, but in moving out to Phoenix, like, I mean, what was that like with the difference in in culture, right? Because it's completely due two different sides of the of the country. So did you understand? understand the people that were in the phoenix area at that young age i had no clue uh i literally came out here with two suitcases uh and they were like old they're like these awful like 1972 cases that i knew i was going to throw away when i got here i didn't know phoenix had mountains uh i knew it was kind of hot but not you know inferno hot uh <laughs> but like i said i thought people still like thought it was like cowboys and indians out here i thought it was uh you know, people rode horses. There was no such thing as cars out here. Like I, I was so naive, and I had no idea what was what Phoenix was. And it, and you know, I later find out it's this huge bustling city that uh, you know has all the problems of the big city. And then you have all these other little cities and stuff like that. So and it's funny because when I first got out here and joined the academy, they go, "You need these special shorts for the Phoenix Police Academy." I don't know where to buy shorts. You know, you had to wear black shorts that were above your knee. I don't know where to buy these things. So I called my parents and I am freaking out. I don't know where to buy shorts. And we had this conversation for a half hour of me just losing my stuff, just trying to figure out where to buy shorts. And my mom goes, how about the mall? So I put mall, and we're talking old school GPS here. And I end up now knowing the valley as the complete opposite end of town, buying the wrong shorts. They fit in the category, but they were nowhere near the academy shorts that I was supposed to buy. So uh, my mom and I laughed to this day. She's like, how about the mall? That's just how my career started. I had no idea what was going on. I lived in a little tiny room uh, in my godfather's house. And I didn't know how to cook, didn't know how to clean, didn't know how to iron, didn't know how to wash clothes. I, it, it was incredible. I, you know, hello life. Uh, <laughs> you need to grow up now, you know, because I was very blessed uh, having a great childhood and, you know, having parents that cared and my mom did the wash. And like I, and I never made my bed. I never did any of that kind of stuff. So it was a real culture shock. A, moving out to the West Coast, which is completely different than New York. Uh, there's, like, actually land here that you can, like, it's open. And, like, they don't, didn't build on it. It's not concrete. So, it, it's, and you go hiking, and there's wild animals that run around out here. It's coyotes and snakes. Never even saw a rattlesnake until I was at the academy. And one guy goes, hey, bro, before you uh, walk in there, there's a rattlesnake at the front door. 
I'm like, bro, what, what do we do with this? He's like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Uh, I'm like, bro, well, I ain't taking care of it. I don't have those things. <laughs> so they, and, you know, they made fun of me, you know, in the academy because, uh, you know, I held my pistol the wrong way the first time because I only seen pistols in movies. In New York, we don't, we're not allowed to carry guns. You know, we're, handguns are a no-no. So, you know, I was holding it like a gangster and I got a lot of ribbon for that. A lot of ribbon for that. But, you know, it's that camaraderie that I learned and those guys in the academy and then throughout my career, they, they're the ones that guided me. They're the ones that helped me, you know, in, a lot, in addition to my friends and family. They're the ones that helped guide me. I didn't know how to shine my shoes. I didn't know. Literally, I was a wreck. And... You know, you bring up such a great point in that. Uh, there, I think there's a, I think there's actually, um, we could do an entire segment on the value and the bonds that are created in that academy setting are lifelong. I still stay in contact with some of the people that I nightly shine shoes with and brass with on those nights. And those were bonds now for a lifetime. It, it is, I, I hear what you're saying there. It's an incredible friendships that began right there in uh, Youngtown Academy. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but we were forced to uh, uh, do carpool uh, to go to the Academy. And one of my carpool buddies, still one of my best friends this day, he's at my wedding, like he was, he's still with me to this day, and I'll never you know, forget him and I'll never, uh, he'll always be right by my side. So no matter what I do, uh, where I go, he's, he's going to be there. And that's, you don't get that a lot in life, you know, uh, those kind of friends and those kind of people that you have support with and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. But the funny thing was, is that I never told him that I was messed up. I, when he found out, you know, I was leaving, uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, but when he found out I was going to Chateau, I didn't want to tell him. I, I did. I refused to tell him. Uh, but yeah, we had a little. Uh, it was right before Thanksgiving, so we had our uh, yearly Thanksgiving festival at my house. Uh, and my wife slipped, and oh my god, I was I was not happy with her because you know I was fine. I was fine, uh, and I didn't I didn't need this. I needed to put up this wall. I needed a, you know none of my TV guys can know that I have problems or anything to that effect. And she told him at this uh, family party, and he's like, "Bro, what is what's going on? Why are you why are you leaving? Why are you going to this place that you're gonna be gone for a month, and you're not gonna have a phone, and you're not gonna have uh, email and stuff?" And I go, "Dude, I, I can't take it anymore. I, I just can't." And he goes, "Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you come to me, man?" He's like, "I knew something changed in you uh, when you were starting to do death investigations and." Uh, going to homicide and stuff like that. He goes, but I didn't know it got this bad. So, and it was because of, well, it was funny because one of my, uh, my first therapist, she called it King Shit because King Shit, they want to tell anybody anything. Nothing was wrong. Uh, I was still best of the best. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. Uh, put on a fake smile and go to work. And that's it. So my identity 100% was a police officer. I didn't do anything else. Uh, I didn't identify as anything else. I was a police officer. I was a detective. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want to, didn't, uh, I, but inside of me, I wanted to, you know, I had these uh, suicidal ideologies that, you know, hey, let's just jump in front of a train today, uh, or let's go ride in the traffic, or <laughs> let's let's use our revolver and play Russian roulette. Uh, and I thought, you know, it's funny because I dealt with this for so long that I thought it was normal. 
I thought it was completely normal to want to kill yourself every single day and think about killing yourself every single day. So I, and then when I got help, I realized that normal people don't do that. <laughs> so I, I don't even know what we qualify as, as normal these days anyways, but Rob, if you're okay with it, man, um, you know, what, what kind of led up to this? Was it like repeated exposure to exactly what you were talking about these homicides and, and these type of things was or, or what what was going on in there well so newsflash uh phoenix is a very violent city uh just turn on our news you'll see it uh so you know like i said 21 years old you're going to these calls and shooting stabbing people screaming mass chaos and it's just you don't realize it until you step away that people that are not police fire military, you know, nurses, that kind of thing. They don't see people with their guts lying out on the ground or a mother screaming with a dead child in their hand. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought I was invisible when I started. I, you know, I just got done with an academy, 18 weeks of the academy. They told me I'm invisible. Um, nothing, you know, we're, we're going to get in a gunfight if, if we need to. And, we're going to take care of business. We're going to get, you know, do use defensive tactics, use all these cool ninja moves that they just taught us, and I'll be fine. There's, there's nothing that's going to harm me. I got this bulletproof vest on. I got my Batman belt on, and we're going to go work. So, get through my probationary year. I transfer, and my partner that I actually carpooled with, we actually ended up on the same squad, and we go to a domestic violence beyond any domestic violence. And it was a knockdown drag out fight, and I shatter my hand. And I, I need place in my hand, and they have to surgically reconstruct my hand and stuff like that. And that, I felt, was a chink in the armor. It literally was like, no, nah, nah, you are not invincible. Uh, <laughs> you can get hurt in this job. And, you know, it was just something in the back of my mind. And, you know, and, you know, I hear the stories and, you know, on the podcast and stuff like that about, you know, um, internal stuff with leadership and that kind of stuff. And I mean, I get it, uh, but I was so resentful when, you know, I break my hand and I'm sitting in there with this huge surgical cast and all this stuff. And they make me sit at the front desk of the precinct. And I'm just sitting there and every cop knows, everybody goes, what happened? So you got to tell your story about a hundred thousand times. And, you know, it's just, it felt like punishment. I know it wasn't punishment, but it just felt like it. They didn't know what to do with a broken cop. So just felt like punishment. Um, you know, trying to do my best and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just a little bit of, you know, that like night and rusty armor that they're your force three to chateau. It's, it's just a little chink in the armor that, that came off. And, you know, I came back, uh, of course, too early because we're cops and everything's fine right away. Uh, you know, and then the other injuries, you know, I hurt my heel and I did this, but you laced your bootstraps up and you go work. You know, you don't want to be sitting at a desk. No, no cop in their right mind wants to sit behind a desk when they're on patrol because all your buddies are out there and having fun. So I continue to go to domestic violences and all this other stuff. Um, we have this thing called a rebid, and uh, I went to a different precinct. And I, when I was there, I started my body started going. Yeah, bro. Uh, we can't handle this anymore. Uh, I started losing control of my body. I, I, I couldn't control things. My hands were shaking. Um, you know, bathroom stuff, going code three to the bathroom because I couldn't make it. You know, that kind of stuff. And it's just, I thought something was wrong with me physically. Uh, physically. Uh, I went to specialists. I went to all this stuff. 
season, cool, go to work, I'll do my stuff, you know, I'll be great. So then I just started, man, I was so angry. I was just angry. I was such an asshole to my wife. I was just, it's just an asshole to people in general because I was just so angry. And I think I told one of my partners at the time, I go, dude, I go to another domestic violence. I, I just can't. I, I just can't deal with the screaming and the yelling and the, hey, I'm going to arrest you uh, for domestic violence after you literally, you know, concave your wife's face in. And then I'll see you tomorrow because I know that you're going to be out tomorrow and I know you're going to go back to her. And I know that we're just like, I was on a first name basis with some of my domestic violence people. You know, it's just, it, it is what it is. I mean, every cop knows that you're going to be on a first name basis and she's going to get hurt. You're going to try to give her every resource. You're going to give her every social worker's name and order protection and all that stuff. And she's still going to get her face beaten in on Friday night after he gets his check and he went out drinking. It, you know, if I could actually, if I could actually point out here, just make an observation. I, I, I love I love that you're bringing this concept up because you're working in an environment that that uh, we know the people that we're working around. I mean, you see these people regularly. You know, hey, hey Joe, uh, you did it again, didn't you? Uh, turn around, put your hands behind your back, because because and, and you know, there's you know, there's some moral injury coming uh, that's a, that's happening inside of you because you're gonna you're gonna put them in the process, but you know they're gonna be out the next day doing the same thing they just did. Uh, it, I, I I I love the fact that you're bringing this up because this happens so many times to officers out there because the, the criminal justice system is, is failing us. The courts are failing on certain levels of keeping these people uh, from, from harming others around them. It is, we just take them in, loop them in, cycle them back out and out they go. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Well, and talk, talk about a total, you know, mind fuck. It, you know, it's like, dude, you just concaved in a person's face or shot someone or whatever. And you're back on patrol, maybe after your weekend or whatever. And you're like, how are you out? You know, I was brought up like, hey, bro, <laughs> you do some crime, you're going to sit and rot and, you know, not be able to do anything and life can be horrible. Then I'm like, wait a second, how are you out? Oh, I got an ankle monitor. How does that help anyone? Yeah. How does that help your wife that you're literally back living with? So, yeah, just that's uh, stuff that I did not realize happened. You know, especially, you know, I'm still in my 20s. I have no idea. They know people beat up their wives and that kind of stuff. And I just got to the point where I go, I got to get out of control. If I go to another car wreck, if I go to another domestic, if I got handed another dead baby, if I got, I, I'm done. Like, I, I got to that pinnacle where I'm like, you know what? I think I'm done here, and I want to. I want to go to investigation. So I'm like, well, I have to. I have to go. So I study my ass off, and I study, and I want to be a detective. And yeah, then I took my oral board, my tests, and that kind of stuff. And everybody's like, you're going to be shooing. You guys, you're amazing. Yeah, crash and burn. I got into the oral board, and I. I don't even know if I knew my name. I had no idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I have these sergeants and lieutenants looking at me and asking me questions, and then the, they ask you a question, and they just stare at you blankly, and I had no idea what to do. So, totally crash and burn. I, I was like, well, now I'm never going to be a detective, and I'm going to have to deal with this, you know, patrol life for the rest of my life because I'm too dumb, I'm too stupid, I'm, you know, can't pass and test. But until I got some mentors in the department, and they're like, dude, relax. You got this. And that's what that's what's great about the police department is the, the camaraderie uh, and those people that you know where to go and and help you. And, you know, after, you know, a lot of critiquing and work, uh, you know, I was able to go to uh, an investigation detail, which primarily 
said death. I mean, death, uh, death multiple times a day. And, you know, or, hey, I know you're not, uh, there's nobody dead today in the city, uh, so we're going to make you go to a homicide or a shooting or a stabbing. Because we were the, the Swiss Army knives of all of detectives because we were the only people on. And, you know, hey, we have this messed up rape or we have this molestation. And uh, I taught myself Spanish, so I was even more, you know, poured out than everybody else. So, hey, we have this messed up uh, molestation. Uh, I know you're not really, you know, supposed to be going to it, but uh, they need Spanish people. So I, I go over there, of course, and I made it for whatever reason. Uh, I don't know, because maybe I'm messed up or whatever, but I go, you know what? This children thing and the death of children, I'm really good at it. And you know what? I'll take I'll take most of them. I'll, I'll take I'll be the expert. I'll go to child training and child death and whatever. Oh, is it a child death? I'll go. I'll take care of it. And I didn't realize how much that messes you up until uh, we actually had a month stretch. My squad was only at the time I think it was three of us for the entire city of Phoenix. Uh, millions of people, three detectives after you know three o'clock in the afternoon, and we were tight. Like there's only three of us, man. There's there's no going back. And these guys are rock stars, 100% rock stars, and never had a problem with each other. Never said one bad word with each other. And, I'm, and I still love those guys to this day. And one month in the winter, we had a month stretch of no suicide, no decomposed bodies, no nothing that we usually do. It was all children that were dead. Every day we'd walk into work and there was a child that was dead. And and the uh, and I saw the squad change. It was incredible. And you know, now that I'm looking back after, you know, I unfucked myself, um, I'm looking back and I go, Man, you know, that's pretty messed up that for a month straight, and I'm not even exaggerating, it was a month straight of kids dead. Like, we couldn't send out enough detectives to cover the children that were dying. And it was because of a strain of RSV that was killing kids that, you know, they'd go to bed and they wouldn't wake up. And, you know, then you've got to deal with uh, child investigative services. You have to deal with, you know, a review, a death review, and all that stuff. So every single thing that you do is questioned. Uh, uh, why Why do you think that the baby died? Why did you uh, do reenactment? So you just keep reliving seeing this child uh, deceased. And I, I didn't have any child. I don't have children. So I thought I should be I should be the guy. I don't have children. It's not going to affect me. Uh, you know, what, what is it? it's just a dead baby. It's, it's, it's evidence. You know, that's what it's talking about. It's just evidence. Um, and, you know, I'll deal with the family and we'll move on to the next case. And just dealing with the families, uh, I never realized, you know, like until you step back away from police work and until you get out of that situation, you're like, I showed no empathy. I showed no, it was business, you know, and I look back and, I, and I'm ashamed that I was just business, you know, but we, at the time, I did the best that I could with what I had. And I didn't have any empathy training. I didn't have any, you know, they don't send you to the academy or, you know, go to F, uh, FTO and go, hey, when you go, to, when you go to a call of somebody's family member that's dead, this is how you should act. No idea. I just was like, hey, uh, or death notification. I was awful at it in the beginning. And then you become so numb telling people that their loved ones are dead that it actually becomes easy. And that's really scary for me to say now that I'm in my place now. But looking back, I'm like, telling somebody that their son, daughter, wife, husband, whatever, is dead is not normal, especially to do it, you know, 10 times a week. 
you know, when I was doing natural deaths and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, you I know, think I, uh, if I can, if I can chime in here for a second, I just want to point out that, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's an emotional separation that has to take place there or you're, or you're, you'll break down on every scene. These, these scenes that you're describing, even though the scenes that you were on were so are very uniquely different than any scenes that I was on. Everything you just said, I can identify with because I, I, I understand completely what you're talking about. Dead babies, dead bodies, heads rolling across the, the pavement. Uh, death notifications, uh, and and the reality is, if you don't have somebody come alongside of you and say, "Here's how to balance this," your natural tendency is to emotionally separate yourself from that, and the outward perception of that is that you're cold, calloused, uncaring, uh, and and you. It's almost a must must to preserve your own sanity. However, what's happening inside is you're having this inner conflict, this inner turmoil is piling up for lack of a better term. Let's use the metaphor of a bucket. You're filling your bucket up with all this shit, uh, this, this trauma shit. And at some point it's boiling over. So I, I, I'm, I kind of want to push you a little bit, Rob, to this boiling over point, this, this, you know, I'm going to take you back to that conversation uh, with in your home when your friend showed up and said, why didn't you tell me? Uh, let's, let's kind of, uh, let's kind of uh, move towards this headed into, headed into to Chateau. At what point did you recognize, man, I am fucked up and I need, I need something. I'm, I thought I was like everybody else, but I'm not. Something's going on with me. Well, Brad, you know me, man. Uh, I didn't admit that I had a problem. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I get, out of, I get out of the one unit that investigates only death, and then I go, well, the smart choice is to go to homicide, where it could be even worse. So, oh, oh yeah, I went to literally, uh, you know, I went to homicide where you're on call every four days and no sleep and up for 72 hours, 36 hours, and all that fun stuff. And, you know, I, I have a friend that she is amazing. And she was working in homicide and took a brief uh, stint uh, with our employee services unit. And when she came back to homicide, she sees me. I'm a, I guess I look like a wreck. I, I don't know what I look like, uh, but uh, I guess I look bad. I, I don't know. So she, we had a small conference room that we would do our secret meetings in. And she pulled me in there and she goes, bro, you need help. There's, you're going to die in your chair if you don't get help. And in the back of my mind, when she's telling me this, I go, shit, she knows she's on me. Oh, my God, she's on me. So I was like, you can't. And I literally told her, I go, you can't tell anybody that I'm fucked up. Or you even think that I'm fucked up. Because I knew, like, I've seen other people, you know, kicked out of units. And dude, homicide was my dream. That was, dude, I was living it up. I was making overtime like crazy. I was supporting my wife. What I thought was supporting my wife. Uh, I thought, you know, hey, this is, dude, I'm the shit. Like, people call me and they go, hey. And I was good at artwork. I was good at recreating scenes. And people would call me to be special. And hey, can you do the? Can you recreate the scene for me? Hey, can you can you draw this in three D? Can you do all this stuff? And I felt like the shit, man. Like I told you, the king shit. And I felt great. Like it was it was like a drug. Like the guys in my group, the home group here, they go, bro, it's like you're you're a heroin user, and you just need that next fix. And I'm like, yeah, but I can do it. I can do it. You know, it's just 
alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, but I was like, man, I really feel like I'm addicted to this, you know, adrenaline, you know, and my, my health still kept going down. And, you know, after, after she said something, uh, I had a horrific, I mean, horrific homicide. And, uh, it, it, it's still nightmares and that kind of stuff to this day. And I get home and, uh, it was, a Friday that I took it. It was a Friday during the day, which is unheard of to have a homicide during the day where you actually get to sleep um, right after the homicide. And the Saturday, we were supposed to, uh, me and my wife were supposed to have a date day. And one of, uh, we identified the guy, we were looking for him. We had all of our tactical, schmactical people and patrol looking for him and stuff like that. And my wife and I are about to leave on this date day. And I can't wait. I've been working my butt off going to this trauma and drama and all that stuff. And I get to spend one day with my wife. One day. This is Saturday. And I get a phone call in the morning. Uh, hey, man, um, you know that murder you were working yesterday? Yeah. Uh, we caught the guy at the Greyhound bus station. Well, knowing that I'm a homicide detective and the case agent, the guy in charge of this case, I got to go. I got to go to headquarters. I got to interview him. I got to do the booking. I got to do all that stuff. So I feel like the worst husband in the world. I feel like I am a giant piece of shit. So instead of telling my wife that, because that's what I should have done, uh, I just explode and yelling and I'm, I'm a piece of shit. And oh, it was bad. And doing that right before you have to go to work, really smart idea. So I, uh, I go, man, this is, what is wrong with me? But I still continued. I still continue to be a angry, awful husband. Um, and my wife, God bless. I don't know how I found this woman. She's gorgeous, and she puts up with my shit. I, I don't. And she put up with a lot of shit. It, it was incredible. I she she literally is like Teflon. So she oh, loves you, Rob. That's, that's the bottom line. I, I, and she and she sees something great in you. I mean, that's the. I think there's an important message here that that, that oftentimes uh, a lot of us feel this way. That why did they put up with that? Well, they see something else in in us besides this outer garbage that we're throwing all over our house or spewing all over the front yard. But uh, yeah, this is, this is great, man. So, yeah, so I'm doing that stuff at home, home life stuff, uh, you know, yelling at my wife. I, I was so anal retentive and needed to control things. I cut my neighbor's tree. Like I pruned their tree and my wife found me pruning my neighbor's tree. And she's like, what are you doing? She's like, you're trespassing on our neighbor's front of their house, trimming their tree. I go, but I can't stand it. I can't, I can't do it. So, you know, after the, the other detective pulled me aside and said, you need help, I go, well, maybe that's a clue. So she goes, hey, call this number. They're getting you in. And I go, yeah, I don't want to see a shrink. I don't need a fucking shrink. You know, I, I'm good. But I'm like, maybe she got a point. So this is this internal battle in my head that's going on. And... <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'll just make an appointment, man. I'll I'll be like, you know, CIA and sneak into my appointment, sneak out. Nobody will notice, and uh, I'll be good to go. So I I don't even go to a therapist in my city. I go to a neighboring city to go to a therapist because I'm scared shitless. I'm getting thrown out of my unit. Uh, I'm not going to be a cop anymore. I'm going to be on a rubber gun squad and all this stuff. So I go to the thing, and they make me take this therapy test. I don't know what it is called. I'm sure, sure it's got a name. And I I vomit. I, <laughs> the lady, I walk in there and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, perfectly fine. Normal human being. And all I kept doing was talking about how, you know, I went to this case and I went to that case and this and that. And I'm, I'm totally fine. 
somebody, and she's like, but you say you want to kill yourself, and you have these thoughts all the time. This is crazy. And I'm like, she didn't say crazy, because she knew I was crazy, but she wouldn't tell me. So uh, <laughs> Don't make you mad. Don't, yeah, don't, don't make you mad. <laughs> I can't believe that these poor therapists put up with my ass, because I was off the rails. And so they find out, they go, hey, we're going to set you up with this woman who only deals with police and fire, and uh, you need to come in tomorrow. Like, tomorrow? What am I? I'm not going to die. So I go, no, you need to come in tomorrow. I said, okay, fine, whatever. So I go in to the, uh, to the therapist's office or whatever, and I sit in the waiting room because, of course, I'm a cop, and I get there half hour early. Then I start sweating unprofusely because I'm like, wait a second. If I'm a cop and they send cops here, they're going to send another cop here, and they're going to find me, and they're going to identify me, and they're going to run back to my department, and they're going to come. And sure enough, I'm going to go through all those feelings again. I'm going to get kicked out. I'm going to do this. So I walk into my therapist's office, and I tell her this. I go, hey, you need to stick me in the back door, or hey, you have a window in your office. Just tap on the window when you're ready, and I'll just come in through the window. Yeah, I, I, I was that bad. <laughs> Because that makes sense. Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. So she sits me down and she goes, listen, man, if they're here in the therapy office, they're here for therapy too, and they're probably not going to rat you out. And I'm like, damn, Doc, you got to play. <laughs> You're so smart. Yeah. Uh, she went to, got a degree or whatever, but that's how fucked up I was. I had, you know, I I picked the back corner of the waiting room and I would I would watch everybody walk in and if somebody I knew walked in, I'd go to the bathroom. Like they didn't see me. Like, come on, man. So I go through therapy and this this lady, you know, she's a sculptor because she's literally like carving me out until one day she goes, Dude, you need to take a break from homicide. And I'm like, Go fuck yourself. This is not happening. This is my jam. I am not leaving. I love this. So she goes, I will get you to do it. And whether it be me telling you to do it or me calling the department and telling you that you're going to be needing to leave. So I'm like, well, shit, I don't want her to tell anybody. So it took me, and it took me weeks of courage to, to go in there. And I am sweating. I am, I am a mess. And of course, who do you got to see when you're a peon detective? You got to see your sergeant. And my sergeant was cool. He's, he's a great guy. Close the door. And I go, dude, we got to talk. And he's like, what's up? I go, um, yeah, I can go see therapy. and went to therapy and stuff. And uh, I see a dead guy in my in my kitchen hanging there uh, probably every day when I go home. He's like, what? I go, yeah. The case that I worked with, the guy that hung, hung himself, and I stayed with him for about four hours and helped cut him down and do all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in my kitchen. He's in the kitchen corner. He doesn't do anything to me, but he just hangs out there. Just hanging out. Yeah, just literally hanging out. And I yeah. go, and I'm like, I thought it was normal. I thought all cops just had a dead guy hanging around their house, you know, or would, you know, a random dead person would pop into their brain or, or whatever. So I thought that was normal. I'm like, dude, I'm probably overstepping, you know, but, you know, can you just give me a break for like 30 days? Uh, send me down to the academy, uh, just cool off. You know, just playing it real cool. Well, like every police officer knows, I don't know how it is in the fire department or anywhere else, but every police officer knows that you tell your sergeant, he's going to tell your lieutenant, then he's going to tell your commander, then he's going to tell your chief. And I'm like, motherfucker. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Well, I didn't realize that that went up the chain of command. So I go, and my lieutenant at the time, he, he was great, uh, but he, he 
Yeah, nobody was trained in dealing with a fucked up cop. I can 100% tell you that nobody, nobody was. So my lieutenant came up to me and he is sweating. And I mean, not like he just ran a marathon, but <laughs> he didn't know how to talk to me at all. He was so, it's not like office space where he's like holding the, the coffee cup and he's like, ooh. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm just typing my reports, you know. I'm I'm still staring at dead people and pricing photos and, and shit like that. And he's like, Hey, can we go up to coffee? And you know, like any self respecting cop says, at free coffee from your lieutenant? Absolutely. So of course he takes me to a shitty coffee shop and uh I'm like, Come on, man, you know I like Dunkin' Donuts and so he takes me there and he's like, Hey bro, I I talked to the chief and I'm like, What? He's like, yeah, I talked to the chief, and uh, he said that uh, you can't go to the academy. I'm like, all right. So here I get enough courage to go up to my sergeant to tell him that I'm nuts. He tells the lieutenant without me, and me, I'm trying to fly under the radar here. And then he tells my commander, who tells the chief, that I want to take a break. And I go, well, now that, you know, however, whatever the math is, people know that I'm fucked up, uh, great. He goes, but I can't send you to the academy. We have to send you to the special investigation. I go, what? I go, all right. Well, our special investigation division was investigating cops. That's, we criminally investigated police officers. That's where they sent me. And I get there, and of course, hey, man, which, why are you here? Because I didn't have any of their access. I didn't have, they had cool offices and stuff like that. They stuck me in a cubicle, and I literally, for one month, spun around on my swivel chair for one month. So I couldn't do anything. Then I started, you know, trying to get cases from other units that were in that office. And I started being a missing persons detective. And I started showing people how to do all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I'm going back to homicide. So I literally left special investigation and they let me back into homicide. And I'm like, man, this is pretty cool. I'm back. And I was, I felt great. Cause I had that break, you know, it was awesome. And this shit just started coming unhinged, man. I felt like I was a fake piece of shit. Every time I walked in police headquarters, cause everybody's like, Hey bro, how's everything going? And I'm like, dude, great. My life is amazing. That's what I would say. That was like my jam. Dude, it's great. Oh man, life is so fucking awesome. Knowing that I want to kill myself probably like 20 times a day at this point, And I'm shoving fucking knives into my skin and, uh, Pens, like I'll, I'll be at work and I'm like, oh, I can't feel a goddamn thing emotionally. So why not feel it physically? And I'm shoving shit in my den. I'm fucking, you know, I, I get hurt or whatever. And I'll, I'm like, no, nah, I'm running on it. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Whatever to feel pain. And, you know, I got to the point where I had this massive dog and I would hope and pray that he would like rip my shoulder out or something like that. So I didn't have to go on standby that night. And then I started doing some real fucked up things that, you know, I'd go up and do follow-up without a vest on and without a radio. And I'd be going into, I'm following up murders, talking to people that were involved in a murder and no vest, no nothing. Nobody knows where I'm at. Uh, you know, just doing crazy shit. And cause I wanted to die. I said, you know what? If I died, my wife would be sad. You know, I start telling myself all this shit. So. But she gets I, the benefits, right? There's always that. There's always that, that mindset of if I get killed in the line of duty, you know, I, I, I take all these protective things off and I, I put myself in harm's way, then maybe somebody will actually take my life and uh, my family's going to be better off because they're going to be uh, fully funded. Uh, but, and I'm better off because I don't have to live with this anymore. Right. This is, this is, 
So I, I feel you, man. I feel well, you. And then my wife doesn't have to deal with my crazy ass and fight with me every fucking day. Yeah, so that's right. Win win for everybody around. So yeah. I go. I got to get out of homicide, man. I I love this job more than anything. I love being a cop more than anything. But I got to get out. I would come out to scenes and I'd just be a complete asshole. I one day I was, for whatever reason I used a straight razor and I cut the shit out of my face going out to a. Uh, call out in you know deep South Phoenix, and I didn't care. I had blood coming down my face, and I I was taking case, and I was just angry. And I was like, dude, this isn't the way to live, bro. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna be a sergeant. So I went and I just studied, and I tested, and I did all this shit while still going through therapy. And she goes, well, you're gonna help people. I'm like, okay, well, I'll help people as a sergeant. So I actually become a sergeant, which I had no idea how I became a sergeant. And there's no training when you become a sergeant on how to deal with people uh, or anything of the, the sense. And not only do you have the stress of being a police officer on the street, you're in charge of now 10 people. And the decisions that you make are going to affect 10 people. And I'm still thinking I want to kill myself and I don't want to wear a vest and I, you know, all this stuff. So, and I'm trying to lead these people. And the first year as a sergeant, I get to go to the riot and talk about a messed up situation. I'm working nights, we have no sleep, and we're working every single day, seven days a week, just going to these things. And uh, one night we go to this riot and people are damaging police cars, they're, they're armed, they're doing all this stuff. And uh, I lose my shit, of course, because I'm angry and I'm just awful. And I left my body cam on and that body cam got released to the media. And I look at myself and I, best thing that's ever happened to me, 100% best thing that's ever happened. Um, at the time, did you, did you feel that way? Like, Oh God, no, I wanted to kill myself. Actually, I, uh, that, that, you know, I, I literally was like, you know what? It's done. I'm done. And when, uh, that night when I found out, Hey, you're in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't sleep. I, I don't sleep anyway, but, um, I was down in my office where I do my artwork and my wife comes down at like two in the morning and she's like, I thought you were going to be dead. She's like, I just wanted to check to see if you were dead or not. And talk about kicking the nuts. I mean, and, and Oh God, I, I planned this shit out. I didn't want her to find me. I didn't want, you know, I was, I was, you know, writing out letters to tell people that, uh, you know, you know, fuck this chief and fuck that chief and this and that, whatever. And, and just, just so we're clear, you feel like you've been hiding it from her the whole time, being so good at her not knowing, right? And she, oh, she, yeah. yeah, she shows up oh, down there and I, says, you're not hiding anything. There's, you're not hiding anything from me, right? So this, oh. I, I know what's going on. No, she, I thought she had no clue that she thought her husband was the best person in the world and there's nothing wrong with him. He just yell every once in a while. And, you know, I, you know, I would tell her about some of the cases and that kind of stuff. But, you know, when it all came out, she's like, dude, I, did, I had no idea what you dealt with for the last 14 years or whatever it was. And I go, yeah. I and I didn't tell her that I wanted to kill myself. I didn't tell her that every day I would, you know, think about. You know, we went to a trip in Chicago, and I'm like, man, if I just step in front of this fucking uh, subway train, it would make everybody better. <laughs> they won't have to deal with me and stuff like that. And there got to a time I don't I don't know when I just said uh, my doc I changed doctors, and she goes, "You're done with police work. You are done. Like you're taking a month off, and you're done." Well, that's a kick in the ass to a guy that wants to be a cop since he was four years old. So I literally called my wife and I said, hey, 
than anything, and I just can't do it anymore. I, I just can't. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you know what? Just I know you love me. I know you love me. Just please, like, go. And I'm like, find a new man and make sure he takes care of you and all this stuff in this phone call because I was too chicken shit to tell her in person. And she's like, this is God. Wow. <laughs> so... Uh, I, so I was going to group at the time, um, and she she's like super close with the guys in group and stuff like that. I, I my second call was to one of my guys in group, and I said, "Dude, I, I can't do it anymore. I, I'm I'm going to kill myself. I, I the guns are in my house. My revolver's there. I always wanted to pick my revolver for some reason. I, I don't know why. And uh, I'm like, dude, I know my guns there in, in the top shelf. I, I can't go upstairs. Uh, and I've been so close to doing it so many times that I, I just can't do it anymore, man. He goes, stop what you're doing. Go to the movies. I'm meeting you there. I'm like, all right, I'll go to the movies. So, and because I'm a big action hero guy, he's like, we're going to see this. I don't care. You're coming. So that got me out of that for just a second, but I still couldn't go upstairs. And when I took a, that, and then I was, took that break from police work for a month, people started going, people reached out. And one of them uh, was a great girl that to this day I'm forever thankful. And she goes, hey, you need to talk to this guy. He's going to help you, bro. And I'm like, I don't need to talk to nobody. I'm just doing this month. I'm going to do my time and I'll go right back to work. So, but I go, you know what, I'll meet with this guy. So this guy was connected with Chateau. And he goes, Rob, you're a fucking mess. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, I will commit you right now. You need to make a phone call. So I'm like, dude, I don't need to be committed. He's like, you're going to call and you're going to go get your stuff up. I go, well, what's, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to call this guy. I know that they, I'm too, uh, too good to go to you know, a recovery center and they're going to not have enough beds or whatever, and I'll just be back in the same place. So I was like, that's what's going to happen. Good to go. So he goes, no, I'll call, and I'll set you up. I said, okay, cool, whatever. I'll make a phone call. And I must have been an asshole. I forgot who I even talked to. Like, I was so messed up. I don't even know who I talked to. I talked to Thayer first, and then I talked to somebody else, and he he was like, so can you get in in, like, two days? And I was like, what? I don't qualify for this. Oh, was that you, Austin? That was Austin. Yep. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry, Austin. I, I don't take it personal. We just I, made a connection. I, mean, dude, I was so fucked up at the time that I, dude, you could have told me your name was like Cher, and I wouldn't have remembered it. He so. goes by Cher. He goes yeah. by Cher part time. I mean, he is better looking than Cher, but, you know, it's the beard. It's the main beard. So I guess Austin was like, you should get your ass on a plane and come to Utah. So that's when I was going to have that family dinner. And I'm like, I got to have the family dinner, man. So now I have to tell my parents, because they're out, they're visiting. And I got to tell my wife, and I got to tell people, hey, man, I'm going to this recovery center, uh, you know, all this stuff. So I reach around and, you know, I tell all these, reach out and tell all these people. And I go, dude, you got to take care of my wife. That was the only thing I could, I didn't give a shit about myself. I just wanted my wife taken care of. She's been my rock. She's been supportive and all that stuff throughout all this time. And I just wanted to make sure she's taken care of. Um, and my friends look after her. And I have a great group of friends that literally every day cooking her food, making, checking on her, uh, taking care of my dogs. Awesome. So then we both decide, she goes, I just want you to be healthy. I don't care if you leave me for a month. I don't 
care if I don't talk to you for two weeks. I can't deal with this anymore. I can't deal with me coming down the stairs, finding you dead. I can't deal with that. And hearing your wife say that is just kicking the nuts, man. So I I was so messed up before I went to Chateau. I was like, what do I wear? Because I don't know. I have police and fire t-shirts. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to a place that has a bunch of crazy police officers and firefighters. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to trigger them. I don't want to do anything like that. So dude, I wore like the funniest shirts ever. Like I, I did a Ron Burgundy shirt. Anything that was not police and fire related, uh, I found it. And so you get to Chateau, man. You get to the airport. And Austin, did you pick me up? Uh, I think Tyler picked you up. Okay, Tyler picked me up. Do it. I literally went off on the man. But I, he's probably like, you You fit in. Because I'm like... I got a phone call after. Oh, so did you? Well, he had just started. And he was like, man, this, guy, this guy's angry. I'm like, oh, good job, man. Welcome to the job. Dude, I, oh, man, that's funny that he said that. Because I get out of the, the, air, the Utah airport. And I guess you have, like, different lanes or some shit for picking up people. I, mm. I didn't know this. So I had to like go up the thing and down a thing and it was a thing. So I'm like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with your airport? <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> you're not you're you're not the only one that says that too, because that is hundred percent accurate. That that airport airport makes no fucking sense at all. God, I was going I don't even remember what I talked to him about. So I was just going off on the airport, I think. And I'm like, and you know, I'm just motherfucking myself, really. I'm just, you know, I'm fucking crazy, da da da. And it's kind of funny that I had that negative impact on him, but that's hilarious. Well, it wasn't a negative impact at all. Like, it, not at all. So we just, I think he was just fresh to the thing. And he's like, did I do this right? This guy was mad. Am I, am I messing up? And I'm like, nope, you're good. Like, this is, this is just how these transports go, man. <laughs> You know, and I thank God that I didn't use alcohol or drugs because I already had to go to this, like, stepping stone place, and it was horrible, and this and that, and I'm like, well, I'm just crazy, so I'm, I'm good. So, he drives me, it felt like four hours. It, it, it's only like an hour and something. 47 and minutes, actually. 47 minutes, and, but it felt like 47 days, and I'm in the middle of the stick. Like, there's, like, grass and cows and horses and shit, and I'm not used to that. I live in the city, and I'm like, where the fuck is this guy going to take me? I'm I'm just envisioning some ladies sitting there on the front steps, like, doing, like, yoga poses and meditation moves. and Knitting. Yeah, knitting. You know, some person's like, yeah! What are you going to have to Like, that's what I so I'm like, really? I'm that fucked up, man. Like, holy shit. So I get up there, and it's this gorgeous house. And he's like, we're here. I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're here. I was like, well, I can stay here for a month. That's not bad. So, and, you know, it's beautiful. It's in Utah, you know. There, there was a river, and I was like, well, I can go fishing here. That's pretty fucking cool. And, you know, I walk in, and they take your shit. And I'm like, why are you taking my shit? And they go, well, we, you know, we have to search through it. I go, what the fuck are you going to find in there? You ain't going to find anything in there. So it was Pam, one of the, the ladies there. She is incredible. And she starts pulling out these shirts of, like, Ron Burgundy and, all of a sudden, she's like, we're getting along. 100% we're getting along. So I go there. Pam, and I meet Pam gets along with everybody. Pam's a rock star. Pam gets along with everybody. Dude, if you go to Chateau just for Pam, you win. You know? 100%. Oh, man. She is just a rock star. And she yeah. has a rock. She has a rock. She's a rock star. She has a rock. She so, does. Um, 
I am off the rails when I get to Chateau, man. I, yeah, I was flipping out over cleaning supplies. Like, you don't have the right cleaning supplies. And, dude, they give you, like, a whole bucket of shit. I just, it wasn't mine, you know? It wasn't, like, I, I need to clean better. I, I don't know. So, I'm freaking out. And they had to schedule up. And me, I'm like, well, it's got to be 10 o'clock. Got to, you know, Wapner, 10 o'clock. So, I'm like, you're starting late. I cannot handle this. You are starting late. And everybody's like looking at me. And I'm like, no, you're starting late. I, I can't deal with this. What, why Why are you saying that this on the schedule is, you know, supposed to be, you know, yoga and it turns out to be meditation or something? I'm like, I, I need to change this. I need to fix this. And I really think that they do that purposely because just to mess with people like me. And there's a little, there's a little portion to that. Yeah, it didn't work very well. Yeah. Hey Rob, one of the one of the things that I think is important in this uh, in this as we're as we're navigating, and, and and I love the fact that we're in the weeds on a lot of this, but I, I kind of want to pull us back out a little bit and and uh, talk a little bit thematically about the impact that Chateau had because uh, we can look, we can have some great laughs about the details of uh, you know we've I know a lot about this already because I know you and we've talked about this, but. Uh, and let's look at Chateau maybe from a broader sense uh, while you're so you're in the door and give us a an overall theme of what's what really happens to Rob over the next 30 days. You know, what what was that transition? How maybe who impacted you? What uh, what was thematically going on there? Um, give us a little bit of a, a 20,000 foot view there. Yeah. So shocking. Rob's off pack. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, Chateau, you walk in the door and everybody treats you like you're a normal human. I thought they were going to treat me like I'm crazy and all that stuff. They treat me like a normal human being and I was off the ramp. So they go, Hey, you need to get in with your psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever it was. And they gave me Sophie and she was new and I felt so bad. <laughs> she got me. And I told her, I go, listen, if you're going to, you know, uh, you know, treat me with kid gloves, it's not going to work, man. She goes, all right, let's go for a walk and talk. So we went for a walk and talk and I go, this is the coolest shit ever. And we, you know, we talked and that kind of stuff. And I've never gone to like a group, group therapy, uh, and in walks Stacy. And this guy, the guru of all mental health, walks in throwing shit at you. And I was mesmerized. Stacy was just polarizing. And I just learned, I could learn still more stuff from that man. Uh, and I learned so much from him. And I, it was funny because he was talking about reading books. I, I haven't read a book since, you know, college. And I barely read a book then. So Stacy opened my world to books and what I can learn from books. And I read a book at Chateau. This guy doesn't read books. So I read The Four Agreements and I read The Knight in Rusty Armor. And, you know, like I said, those things, you know, the armor starts chinking off. And I I was brutally honest from the start at Chateau. You know, I wanted to kill myself. I, you know, I even had some suicidal ideologies while I was there. And I got sent to the principal's office. And it just felt like when I was, you know, week, probably week two, three, whatever, it just felt like this weight got lifted off. Because I was doing, my brain was kind of clear. And it was the first time that I wasn't like, all right. How am I going to kill myself today? Uh, you know, what what in this house can kill me? You know, or, you know, this person hates me, this person, you know, all these negative self-talk and awfulness, you know? So, you know, and I opened up and I go, you know what? And they start like, it's crazy because your group that you're with sees you change. And they're like, dude, 
we thought that you were the worst person. Like you, you were the one that was most fucked up. And I thought, you know, hey, I don't have a drinking or drugging problem, so I, I'm fine. And they, you know, at the end of it, you, you have a rock out, and people tell you about you and your recovery, and they go, uh, yeah, dude, you literally did a 180. Like, I, I can't believe it. Well, and, and I, I want to cut in on that one, Rob. I think, I think you're giving yourself a little lack of credit here on the amount of work that you had to put in to get to that point, right? Like, there, there's it, therapy and mental health in general, right? Like, it, there's no uh, cookie-cutter way to be successful because everyone is so different and some you have as a therapist or whatever it is to be successful you have to get your client to buy in and, and it's that's what you did you you put in the hard work to look at yourself from an introspective standpoint then you took the tools that were given to you and applied them that's that's the difference right and that's where the change starts happening when you when you utilize all those things that you're learning and put in the hard work to do it because i mean tell me if i'm wrong it's extremely difficult to do all of those things <laughs> Difficult's not the word, Austin. Like it, it's awful. Like you got to go tell some randos. You know, yeah, they're cops, yeah, they're firemen. Uh, you know, they're successful people in there. My roommate was an uber successful guy, and I learned so, he was not a police officer or firefighter. He, uh, he, you know, he was a normal guy. He was unsworn. And back when I was, you know, a cop, I was like, oh, he's beneath me. You know, he's why? Why did they ruin me without a cop? And I got to tell you, I learned more from him than a lot of the cops that I was with. I mean, the cops that I was with were great. I learned a ton of stuff, but just knowing his story and learning, it's like, man, you could not be a cop and still be fucked up. And he, I saw him put in the work. I saw cop, I mean, he's huge, muscular cop. I'm not a big guy. You know, these muscular SWAT guys and special forces and, you know, ninjas and all the stuff that comes through Chateau. I see these guys and they are crying. They are going through some shit. And I go, well, if they could do it, I could do it. So I just opened up. And, you know, you, you, and you don't have to open up in a group. You know, I went on a hike with uh, Tim. He's one of, the, one of the guys there. And I was just going off on my chief and stuff like that. And he goes, why? He only asked me one question. Just why? You are wasting your life in this moment on somebody that doesn't even know your name. <laughs> and it was like a light bulb. Like, why am I worrying about this shit? And, you know, the walking talks and everybody's so available for you at Chateau. Uh, listen to me. I'm sounding like a freaking uh, advertising here. But, um, like, I asked Pam, I said, hey, you need to take a walk for me with me. Because I was, I was contemplating retirement. And she said, look, in, look into yourself and see what's best for you and what's best for Shannon. That is the only you don't. It doesn't matter if you're the best cop in the world. It doesn't matter if you go back. It doesn't matter if you retire. You need to put you and your recovery first. And I go, that's, that's a hundred percent, right? Like that's, it's about you. It's about you and your family. That's, that's what all of this is about. And guess what? When I put in my retirement papers, uh, I had to medically retire. <laughs> the police department didn't want my ass. <laughs> they found out all this shit. So, uh, you know, I put in, I put in my retirement papers and I left, you know, it's a year process to medically retire. And throughout that process, you learn who your friends are and um, you start to, that's the recovery on the app, you know? And there was this one girl, 
because uh, I've trained people in homicide. Like I, I trained this one girl, amazing girl. She's my sister from another mister. Like she is the most beloved girl, not by me, but by every single person that enters Chateau uh, and does the alumni groups and stuff like that. And I felt ashamed. I knew something was going on with her uh, at the time that she was training, but I was too afraid to uh, acknowledge it. I was afraid to say anything to her because then she would find out, figure out me. So she finds out that I go to Chateau and she goes, Hey, you're, uh, you're coming with me to equine therapy. I'm like, well, Chateau told me that I should try different things. Dude, the city boy from fucking New York is going to go ride a horse. <laughs> no, the horses shit on you. And they, you know, you got to head on them. So I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I go there and my friend is there. Well, my really good friend now is there. And I said, well, I can't, I can't do this therapy without talking to you. And Chateau gave me the strength to tell her, listen, I failed you. I failed you as a, uh, a mentor. I failed you as a teacher because I knew something was going on with you, but I was too afraid of my own self to help you or even try to even affect you in any way. And she looked at me and she said, I understand that. But do you realize that you were the only one that was kind to me? And I'm like, I wasn't kind to anybody. I was an asshole to myself. I was an asshole to everybody else. She goes, no, I was getting treated like shit. And you were the only one that took your time out and spent it with me. And to this day, I'm still ashamed that, you know, I could have got her help. I could have done more things for her and that kind of thing. But she keeps, and if you know her, she will, uh, she will tell you the right way and the wrong way. And she keeps me in line. She is my mentor. She's my guide. Uh, and, you know, her and my wife are really good friends. And she'll dine me out to my wife or my wife will dine me out to her. And it's those bonds that you make with Chateau that keep me going. Because newsflash, Chateau is not a cure. It's not going to be your cure. It's not going to be your end-all, be-all. It's giving you ways to help you. And if you don't take those things and run with it, you don't take meditation, yoga, uh, journaling, med- uh, d- uh, devotional, you like, you don't take any of that shit out of it. Well, you're going to fall flat right back on your face. 100%. There's, there's nothing I can, you know, tell you about. And one of my buddies, the same buddy that I went to the academy class with knew another person that went to Chateau. He goes, Rob, why are you so healthy? And why are you, why are you not angry anymore? And why, why do you, you know, want to help people? And that's not, he goes, because I know this other guy, he didn't do any of the, the stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, go to your groups and this and that. And he goes, he's just, he's not, he's different than you. He's not cured. I started laughing. I was cured. I go, dude, I'm still fucked up, man. There's no cure for this. I go, but I, I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm not, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not being a fake person anymore. Do you want to call me crazy? You want to call me fucked up? Go right ahead. I'm still Rob. I still love my wife. I still love my friends. I will be here to support you. And you know what? If you're talking shit about me, you were never really my friend in the first place. Yeah, my friends, for sure. My friends yeah, said, so- you know, we we actually just uh, we actually just did an interview uh, uh, that uh, podcast that got posted uh, with Tim Wickham that was talking about the very thing that you're 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 resonating here, which is you know that you're not cured. You don't you don't get cured from the journey that we've been on, uh, but it is manageable. It is you know, and he spent some time uh, talking about the management of uh, PTS and 
PTSD. And, and this is what I'm so glad you brought it up because this is, this is what we're talking about here. You don't have to live this life. Uh, and I think it's important to point out too, you made a, another valuable point uh, that I want, I want to, to draw out, which is this accountability piece, this accountability um, um, inserted into your life. I know you didn't use that word because it's kind of a dirty word and nobody likes it, especially if you're a cop that's been doing this, but you're now accountable to somebody willingly, right? It's different. I, I'm willingly accountable to my spouse. I'm willingly accountable to my friend and they dime me out. Well, that's that has a kind of a negative connotation if you don't know the context, but the context is I want these people to, to call me on my shit right now that you're, that's the space that you're talking from. So I just want to point out this, this piece that is so valuable that you're, that you're talking about now is a different framework, a different mindset, a different, uh, a different life uh, of, Hey, call me out. Cause sometimes I may not see it. Absolutely, man. Like I, I fuck up, man. Like I, when you're in recovery, you're not going to be, you know, you'll come out with a pink cloud and you'll know everything and you can feel like you're a therapist and you can help the world. Dude, then life hits you. And, dude, there's ups and downs, peaks and valleys. And I tell that to people that get sent to me for help and, you know, try to guide them or whatever that people think I'm a guru or something. And I go, dude, I, every single day, I have to wake up before the sun. And I have to do my devotional and I have to read my book and I have to do my meditation because if I don't do that, my day is fucked. And yeah. I, I, and I'm awful. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Rob's life now. Like what, okay. what does your life look like now? Well, the best part of my life is that I am, since I've gotten out of Chateau, I have never fought with my wife. Not one time because we learned how to communicate. And am I, do I screw up sometimes and not communicate effectively sometimes? Absolutely. But I learned the, I feel, and hey, I, when you did this or whatever, I feel this. And let me tell you, that's way more receptive than you're fucking this and you're that and screaming, slamming doors, you know, that kind of stuff, you know? And my life now is I need to do my, do my schedule. So I have a set schedule that I do and I plan it out. And I say, you know, just like Chateau, where you go, hey, I need to do, uh, I'm saying that I'm going to do devotional, I'm going to do meditation, I'm going to do yoga, whatever. And you, you get held accountable for it at Chateau. So I hold myself accountable on my schedule. And you know what? If I don't get to it, am I a little disappointed? Yes. But I know that there was a good reason why it didn't. And I put that in there. I put that in my schedule and say, hey, this is the reason why I didn't do it. And that's an accountability thing, like Brad was saying. And then also, Sunday, uh, Sunday night, I go to Chateau alone. Monday night, uh, we have uh, my group therapy has a uh, softball team. Uh, we're, the, we're the local 918, uh, and we are not very good. But it is it forced us to get out of the house. I would seclude. I would do all that stuff. So coming up with that, uh, my buddy came up with that, and I joined the team, and my wife joined the team. So I play third base. My wife plays second base, and it gets us out of the house. It gets us doing stuff. And I would never do any of this a couple of years ago. And I, I go to group Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Sunday. And while, while I'm also doing that, you know, I got to do my meditation and I don't really do yoga as much, but, um, you know, it's, it's just like a weight lifted, you know, and I don't hear, do I hear sometimes that voice? It's like, yeah, you can eat your gun, but I know 
that my guns are locked away. I gave my guns to my friends. Like, I, I don't care, you know? And it's that non, it's the non-existence of that chirping in the back of my head is great. And that's how I am today. And I've made so many connections, so many bonds with people that are in recovery. And those people are badass. They are smart. They are witty. And they will do anything for you. I mean, anything. Uh, if you're having a bad day, you send one text message out. And I guarantee you that all day long they'll be checking on you or coming to your house. And, you know, that's what I thought I was going to miss with police work and with especially our first responder alumni and, you know, even other alumni and stuff like that. You literally throw up that white flag. You throw up, hey, dude, I'm I'm not doing well. And you will have people, I think they would literally like, you know, parachute in and shit because they are that devoted to each other and they're that devoted to me. They get it. They understand. They know. They Absolutely. they have been there themselves. And, you know, uh, when I started with, uh, I was like an OG to the online uh, alumni and I was still fucking mess. I got out of Chateau. Um, I was, you know, I, I felt good, but I wasn't anywhere near where I am today. And, you know, Brad was the OG, like he was the, the runner, him and John were the, the two heads of state there. And, you know, I'm this guy that has his ups and downs, peaks and valleys. And I was like, you know, this is me, this is what I'm doing, but I'm excited to be with cops and firemen again and have a way out on Wednesdays. And what's great is on Wednesdays, I learn things. So it reinforces like, hey, um, this is mindfulness. Remember mindfulness when we went over this? And I was like, oh, shit, yeah, I remember that. But yeah, I should read my book. So and it just enforces that, hey, you should, this is not a easy journey. This is an ongoing journey. And, you know, my life now, I don't, I'm not trimming my neighbor's tree, so that's good. <laughs> Uh, I am not freaking out over little things. Uh, will I freak out? Absolutely. And my wife goes, I have emergency medication now. I have, my wife knows all my grounding techniques. My friends know my grounding techniques. My friends know, dude, take a pill. Like, dude, dude take a pill. <laughs> so, um, and there were some rough times, man. There's a lot of rough times. Still to this day, I got to take a pill or you know, whatever. But I have that, that outlet. I have that emergency. I have that person that I can fall back on. I can call Brad at any time, day or night, and say, hey, man, I'm messed up. And he'll be like, he'll throw some voodoo, uh, amazing, you know, spiritual stuff at me. And I'll go, man, I just feel that 1% better. That gets me over that hump. And you can't, there's no pill for that. There's no, you know, awesome meditation type thing to do that. It's just that support you feel. And with that support and all that stuff, um, I realized that I can still help people without having a badge and a gun. You don't need a badge and a gun to help people. And that's how I had enough courage to go into where I'm at now. I'm only volunteering, uh, but I help children with children and adults with Down syndrome, and I'm teaching people how to read. And it, yeah, you know, like I thought, you know, catching a murderer was like the coolest thing in the world. And yeah, I was a badass. When I heard the child, that, or actually the adult that I tutor, uh, read a word better than any homicide arrest I've ever made because he's nonverbal. He didn't have a formal education and I got to get him to read a word and so cool. write a letter. That's just incredible. And to be like, every, I know every Wednesday and Thursday I'm coming home happy 
because I get the biggest hugs. I feel like I'm supported. There's like literally you walk in uh, to Gigi's Playhouse. I'll give them a plug here because they are amazing. And you walk in, there's like little hearts floating around. And you're like, how could anybody be angry here? How could anybody have a bad day here? And it's just so heartwarming that I could do this in my recovery. And the, my recovery allowed me to do this and open up to even have the possibility of helping other people without having a badge and a gun. It's so cool. You found your passion. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. Rob, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it was an amazing you know, podcast that we got to walk through this journey with you. And, and I just want to say how much I appreciate you and how much uh, I respect the work that you've put in to live a better life. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, you know, I'd love to have you back sometime, maybe talk about, uh, you hit, you hit several things that I think I'd love to drill down on Austin, maybe have invite him back and talk a little bit about, uh, the relationship piece. Uh, he's obviously, uh, hit something there and especially that I feel statement and some of these, some of these things that we could really spend a lot of time on, but, uh, Rob, man, thanks for opening your heart and your soul to the, to the, to us and the listeners out here. Uh, your story is absolutely amazing. And I love the smile. I, I remember on the call when Rob started showing up and he started smiling. I'm like, man, something, he's starting to hit it. He's starting to hit stride. Uh, the smiles are different. And, and now we obviously, uh, you know, know, you're beaming all the time and we're giving each other shit on that call. It's uh, it's so much fun to uh, see this growth in you and this uh, this life in you start to blossom. And, uh, you know, it's it's just so, so great to see. And thank you so much for sharing, uh, taking time out of your day to share and come on. Like I said, I don't a privilege to be with you guys. And if I just help one person uh, share my story, then this is a 100 percent success. And uh, I love you guys for having me. And uh, like I, I would do this all day, every day. So uh, I just want to, you know, tell my story and reach out and hopefully this helps one person. Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced immersive educational academy will not just change your life, 
it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-4193. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.